Hi guys, and welcome back to Redcoat History, the podcast and YouTube channel for military history geeks like us. I've got a cracking episode for you today with the excellent Rob from the British Muzzleloaders YouTube channel. Rob's a friend of the show, and this is his third appearance. He's a walking encyclopedia on muskets and rifles of the last 300 years. Today he's telling us all about the Baker Rifle, aka the Patton 1800 Infantry Rifle, which was the weapon carried by British and Portuguese rifle units during the Peninsular War and beyond. It was a great weapon that gave the British riflemen a distinct range advantage over the French skirmishers. But what is the history of its development? How was it used and what is it like to shoot? Stick with us as Rob will be answering all of those questions. Before I cut to the interview though, I just want to ask a quick favour. I'm really keen to share these stories of British history with as many people as possible. So please do subscribe and share the links with friends and family, anyone you think might be interested. So Rob, I guess the, the first thing I wanted to ask you was before the Baker rifle, what was the development of rifles for military use? How had the British Army sort of, you know, during the Revolutionary War and so on, what, what was their usage of the rifle like before the Baker rifle, if, if at all? They were used and they were used effectively to the point where the British Army in North America in the sort of late 1770s uh, found itself sort of wanting in that regard, that there are specific roles that needed to be played on the battlefield, both in, in a skirmishing light infantry style, but also just in a general action as well, that um, the use of a rifle, a, a weapon that could you know, hit specific targets at ranges well beyond that of the, the brown bess, uh, was a requirement. And there may have been, you know, unofficial uses. Uh, of course, Patrick Ferguson probably is the, the name associated with rifles and the American War of Independence, if uh, the first name you probably associate with that. And that's a bit of a, I don't say red herring. It's it's obviously a very important, you know, episode in the use of uh, rifled firearms uh, in well, the British military in particular. Uh, and of course, the, the technological advances that came with that. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to have to interrupt and show my ignorance. Who 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 was that you just mentioned? Patrick Ferguson. Yeah. Right. So he was an officer in the British Army, and he developed a rifle that was, well, to say that it was ahead of its time is probably a, a good general way to describe it. Um, it had some inherent weaknesses, but it did have a couple of incredible strengths. And the most important of which was the fact that it was a rifle when the army was equipped with the Brown Bess, you know, smoothbore, nominally uh, 75 caliber musket. Uh, so it had inherent qualities that associate with rifling in a barrel. So range accuracy. But perhaps the most revolutionary aspect to it was the fact that it was breech loading in an era where muzzle loading was, you know, almost 100 percent of any sort of military, you know, firearm um, suite of uh, weapons they would take to the field. And this breech loading was achieved by a, uh, a plug that was screwed into the breech area from below uh, with a very specific twist rate uh, and some certain other features in terms of the metallurgy used as well as the design of the threads uh, and the shape of the actual plug itself so that it was attached to the trigger guard. So if we can imagine, I'm, I'm gonna bring this out just so I can demonstrate. 
I obviously don't have a Ferguson. I, it's one of those things that it would be really nice to have as far as the, the general history and, and my general interest in older firearms. But I'm going to hold up my Baker here. And if we can imagine that the, you can see the brass scroll trigger guard here. Well, if you can imagine a, a plug coming in about where my finger is straight up into the breech area, into the barrel, and that was attached to the trigger guard. And by grabbing the rear of it, with, there was a, a convenient handle uh, placed there. And you could just simply rotate that around one full circle, and it would unscrew this plug from, from, from the breech. And the top of it was actually exposed. Uh, you could see it. At, at, sorry. You could see it up here. Uh, and by twisting it, it would drop it down, exposing an area into the breech where you could then load the ball and the powder. Um, it, it, you know, and it was never used to the point where specific drills were, were established for it, or certainly written down anyway. But there's a number of ways that you can, you can expedite the loading process with powder that's pushed out, because then you rotate it back and the, it rotates that plug sort of up back into the breech. Um, and there you have a primed and loaded firearm that you never had to reverse. You can do it lying down uh, from behind cover. Uh, much more easily than you can a muzzle-loading arm. So uh, there were only 100 made, and they were taken into action um, in in those small numbers uh, during specific events during the American War of Independence. And by all me uh, sort of accounts, they were effective. Um, I think that the numbers, uh, very much an experimental, as you might imagine, an experimental sort of arm on the battlefield. And... Uh, it appears after their sort of first use by a group of people that it, their use sort of the, the organization that that nominal uh, sort of experimental uh, company of riflemen got sort of broken up and there was casualties and then rifles started breaking and you know becoming unserviceable and then they were distributed maybe to other places. The, the exact history I'm not uh, obviously um, completely up on, but it sort of had its moment and then other events overtook. Uh, as well as other aspects of that particular rifle. They're very expensive. They were inherently weak in terms of manufacturing and construction. So I think there's two originals left, uh, I believe. One for sure, I know that. And they both suffer, as my understanding is, from the same type of crack in the stock uh, because so much wood has to be removed to accommodate this breech mechanism uh, that the stock itself becomes weak. So there were some inherent uh, you know, issues with it. It was by no means a uh, sort of, well, we should just make this and issue the whole army with them. It, again, experimental. But what it did was that it opened up this sort of aspect um, to try and uh, match the levels uh, and the capabilities that were exhibited by the American riflemen. And of course, the American riflemen had, had the rifle was part of, of their culture. It was by no means, especially militarily, by no means a universal sort of a, a universally applied weapon that even the Americans were um, uh, armed with smoothbore muskets. Um, but again, given the conditions of fighting in North America, they needed this capability. And the Ferguson rifle was one of them. Another rifle that gets essentially no um, sort of public awareness made of it is the 1776 rifle. And in that rifle, um, it was decided, again, to uh, introduce a rifle into British service for North America. And a commission was struck to, to they ended up getting 1,000 made. So much larger numbers. 
Um, again, it, it wasn't intended that these rifles were to be given to one specific unit, but it appears as though these rifles were intended to be spread across the army and all, you know, all theaters and different kinds of units. Um, there was, uh, in particular, I believe the numbers going, I'm going to get the number wrong. It was the 14th to the 17th light dragoons, which is a cavalry unit. Um, uh, and they were issued with a number of them. Um, there's been some artwork created showing them. These rifles came from the German tradition. And the German tradition uh, perhaps is the sort of the embryonic European, maybe Central European uh, sort of beginnings of rifles in military service. Uh, German, but Central European. So there was uh, uh, the, the, the Jaeger tradition. So if you think of today what, what that term and sort of the hunter, the light infantryman, uh, where those terms are applied in various European armies, then that's where we're, we're talking about. And uh, the British found themselves using German riflemen uh, during the conflict, as well as other German regiments, um, you know, wholesale. So they're sort of, if they were looking at how they were going to, you know, get a rifle into service, like where do we look? Do we copy what we see being used in North America with that longer sporting hunting style rifle, which itself isn't necessarily the best military application of a rifle. They're, they're typically smaller in caliber. They're, you know, they're long, they're unwieldy, which is not perhaps what we would think about an ideal weapon for the bush. Um, but they turned to the Germans and the German tradition, I should say, probably is a better way to describe it, and the Jaeger tradition. And, and there we have shorter, sort of heavier barreled, uh, rifles, particularly for hunting, but they've translated themselves into military service. And in fact, the first 200 of these 1776 rifles, as they've become known, are made in Germany. I say Germany in the greater context of sort of the modern, you know, all the different states. They think they come from Hanover. Um, and when you look at them, uh, there's examples in DeWitt Bailey's book. Uh, that's very, um, probably the best source of information for this kind of stuff and you can tell immediately that they're of the german tradition the 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 furniture the shape of the stock the patch box all those kinds of features very german and again a small rifle no provision for a bayonet um because it was seen in the rifle tradition that was something that they didn't need but they would typically carry a sword uh on their hip for you know duties of like bush work but also self-defense uh as opposed to a bayonet that you'd actually fix to the end of the rifle. Uh, this is carried on, in fact, to the remaining 800 pattern uh, uh, or 800 uh, units of um, the 1776 rifle that are produced. And there's a transition at that 200 rifle point, and they adopt a pattern uh, and a design that is it's German in heritage, but British in execution. So the stock style changes. It has a stock like a what they call the handrail stock, which is very much looks like the brown bess, a carbine bore. So not super small, not 30 or 40 caliber, but 60 caliber rather. I say that nominally rather than 75. Um, and there's special powder that's produced specifically for this extra fine rifle powder. Um, so it's expensive. Uh, it's obviously it's not widely in the supply chain. And these rifles come across uh, and are distributed throughout the army and are used in you know, light infantry skirmishing roles, specialists within light infantry companies, that kind of thing. There doesn't seem to be a lot of, of you know, really hard information about where they end up, uh, but the numbers of, gen of manufacturers sort of speak to 
um, the kind of distribution you might find across you know, various units. Uh, and you could safely assume then that these were given to, you know, a half a dozen or 10 men in the light infantry company to augment the sort of accuracy of their fire that they would, you know, and their engagements that they would be typically be uh, involved in. So that, those two, in a nutshell, the Ferguson rifle and the 1776 rifle are the, the, the weapons, the rifled weapons, of course, that are sea, sea service in North America uh, in varying degrees of success and sort of universality. Um, and after the American War, light infantry takes a little bit of a backseat. And uh, to say things, I, I say these things sort of colloquially, is that, well, now we can get back to real soldiering, right? Because, you know, the, the, the techniques and tactics that we adopted in North America, which were quite, say, revolutionary, and no pun intended there, but the British Army's reputation in North America is very plodding, pedantic, unimaginative, you know, the officers are foppish and they don't know what they're doing. And this is, these are all legends and things like that that have been built up through, you know, various other cultural sort of focuses. Um, the evidence speaks contrary to that and that the British Army was by all, you know, real firsthand accounts, eminently adaptable, both in tactics, uh, weaponry, obviously, as we talked about the rifle, but also in dress. And, uh, and so the dress and tactic side of things is something that's not often discussed but you know maybe the, the when the war started the british army was had a certain element of that plodding kind of european style formal method of warfare but very shortly after that as they learned in what's termed in north america the french and indian war which is the north american side of the seven years war uh, the same thing happens is that this light infantry style or mythology or not mythology i'm sorry but methodology is the word i was using comes to the forefront because of the terrain that they're for, forced to fight in, the, the woods, the broken terrain, the, the close country. Um, and the British Army adapts very quickly and by accounts most effectively to the point where they end up dominating nearly all engagements. Um, and uh, again, one of the, the myths of, of that particular uh, uh, conflict is that they weren't like that. But what you see coming out of the war is perhaps maybe a reversion to that more formal European model. And certainly with the introduction um, of uh, uh, the Dundas Manual of 1792, two, three, uh, it's one of those two years. Um, yeah, so he sees a real focus, uh, his, his, his maneuvers that he prescribes. Yeah, that he's very Prussian. Yes, and, and very much of the Prussian style and school, uh, the Frederick yeah. the Great tradition. Yeah, the three deep kind of line so, and all of but, that. Right. The light infantry side of things uh, in those intervening years takes a little bit of a backseat. But as soon as the revolutionary wars of the 1790s sort of take place, they're like, okay, and especially the French focus heavily on the, the, light, the light infantry side of things. Predom uh, from a different reason, perhaps, is that they're the levy en masse, the mass conscript armies with, you know, being trained on the march as they get raised and are sent to the front kind of thing. And they train as they go is that they're, well, they don't have the capability to master these sort of, I don't, I don't want to say robotic, but certainly formalized way of maneuver. Um, but in order to protect them, they rely on a, a fairly large body, but they focus their attention to the, the real nitty gritty training 
under light troops because it's the light troops that they use then to protect the perhaps slightly the, the more blunt instrument of the levy en masse. Uh, and, and this is sort of their style of warfare evolves into this. Um, so on the British side, they see, well, okay, wait a minute, we need to somehow match this. And what we see is a in the on the in the British context is this development of, or sorry, I should say, the redevelopment of the light infantry arm. Uh, and uh, part of that development is the introduction and the raising of an experimental corps of riflemen in 1800, and this. Uh, is based on, you know, some of that corporate knowledge that may have, you know, still been on the back burner within the army. Um, it's important to note, though, that it does, the light infantry tradition has two aspects to it. One is the light infantry tradition, which is, um, you know, red-coated, musket-wielding, you know, light infantry troops trained yeah, in extended Like your 43rd attacks. and your 52nd regiments, I think, those sorts exactly. of guys, yeah. But then the other subset to that is the rifle tradition. So, you could say that the two are trained, the two types of infantry are trained in the same tactics in terms of how to, you know, extended order, um, outpost duties, these kinds of things. But the rifle troops, uh, in the, which is initially under the, ex the guise of the Experimental Corps of Riflemen, who later then come into the line as the 95th Rifles, they, uh, you know, bring this extra piece to the puzzle, this extra capability in terms of range and, and uh, the ability to select targets at those greater ranges and engage them effectively. And of course, they do this with the Baker rifle. And the Baker rifle, then known as simply the infantry rifle, it comes again from this German tradition of sort of a Jaeger rifle, a shorter uh, carbine bore rifle um, with aspects to it that, you know, are more uh, attuned to marksmanship. So uh, if we look at the Baker, which is, this is the one that is the feature featured on the channel from time to time. But um, there are some features here that come from the German tradition, which this being one of them, the scroll type trigger guard, so that, you know, it's like a pistol grip. It, it gives your hand, it's kind of awkward in the camera, of course, but, it, you know, it's very easy and, and comfortable to put in your hand. It, it, it What it does is it, uh, it, it takes away the necessity to really crane your wrist around the, the your wrist around the wrist or the small of the butt and allows your hand to sit more vertically as you as you fire it so again just comfort wise it, it, and that comfort can translate into better accuracy another aspect of that is that let's get the light here we can see the cheek rest which is an extension off the side of the butt so that when you put your cheek on it it just it holds it a little bit more comfortably um, it goes without saying that being a rifle, it needs sights. That you're not going to hit anything, you know, with, with any sort of regularity without a set of sights. So there's obviously a back sight and a front sight. I don't know if we can get the light in there. You can actually see the, maybe, I don't know, you can see the rifling maybe. If I can get it right up to the camera. Anyway. You can see the rifle, so. So, you know, it's not a, I'll just back up, it's not a very, you know, long arm indeed, uh, and certainly much shorter than the what the infantry were armed with as far as the brown vest goes. Um, but again, it, it's very much in the, the German tradition, and to, so those features, uh, it of course does have the capabilities, as is decided at some point, of mounting a bayonet, and there's a bar that's brazed onto the side of the barrel uh, for a sword, and it's interesting that 
that this is the, the first instance of the use of uh, a sword, you know, uh, bayonet on an infantry arm. And uh, to this day, the, the bayonet in rifle units is referred to as a sword, even though we're well past the point of riflemen being armed with a specific type of, of bayonet, as they would have been with the Baker. So in modern infantry, in, in a rifle context, their bayonets are the same as anybody else's, but they're referred to as a sword, even though they're, you know, this long now. <laughs> uh, but that's an interesting sort of lineage about that terminology. And uh, uh, it's a big, heavy, unwieldy, you know, weapon. And so the fixing of them is sort of something that's done as a last resort when you know that it's getting to that point where you're going to be, you know, looking at somebody, you know, across your bayonet. Um, but up until that point, it's something that you perhaps wouldn't have fixed to your rifle because it is heavy and wieldy and it makes shooting a little bit more awkward for sure. Um, but again, that's the, the, the German tradition uh, and how it manifests itself in B British service as far as, you know, rifle armed troops go. And it's that infantry rifle, it goes through uh, a number of patterns, uh, two main patterns during the Napoleonic Wars from 1800 and its adoption through to 1815. Uh, and what could be termed the 1800 pattern, which is the one I just showed you, and an 1805 pattern, which is a little bit, um, I say, simplified in certain aspects. It Capability-wise, it's identical. It's got the same barrel, same rifling. Uh, but you know, details of the patch box are simplified and and that kind of thing. The shape of the stock changes ever so slightly. Um, but uh, so it's the 1805 pattern that is predominant throughout the Napoleonic uh, sort of campaigns, especially the peninsula and down into Waterloo for sure. And that's how the Baker rifle, you know, and its sort of lineage comes into service in the British Army and again, as you say, in 1800. Well, I wanted to I wanted to backtrack a little bit on that, Rob, to kind of ask how how the uh, pattern was it eighteen hundred uh, pattern infantry rifle came about in the first place. You know, maybe you could give us a little bit of background of what made uh, the British Army finally make that decision to to go down this road and how Ezekiel Baker's design was um, was chosen. Do you know a little bit about that? Um, I guess a little bit. Uh, I think the the crux of the the, the, the whole adoption, the, the trials and this kind of thing, uh, it is, it's not so much Baker's overall, like his package, his rifle, so the shape of the stock and the, 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 the style of the trigger guard. The, the most important feature of what Baker brings to the table is the barrel and his selection of rifling and twist. It's decided that his rifle barrel holds the best balance. Uh, between a number of different aspects. Um, accuracy is one of them, but not the only thing. As important as you might imagine in a military arm is its ability to be able to use on the battlefield repeatedly with minimal amount of, of maintenance. So what they find with his style of rifling is that the fouling is kept to a degree that is considered, you know, not, not optimal perhaps, but certainly manageable. And amongst the most manageable of all the different um, uh, versions of barrel on trial. So it's a combination of the accuracy and the, the anti-fouling capability. I shouldn't say anti-fouling because there's fouling in every black powder rifle or, or, or firearm that you use. But the, the fact that the slow twist has something to do with the ability and the ease of loading because of the way the fouling 
is collected and uh, or the powder burns, the pressures are developed. Uh, I'm not quite sure of the exact chemistry and the relationship between them all. But those are the criteria that are, are selected as being important. And it's seen that his barrel version is what they end up going with. This is the combination that, uh, as they say mentioned, comes into service as the infantry rifle of 1800 and subsequent patterns after that. And, and that is maintained throughout its complete lifespan uh, up until the Baker rifle as a, as a weapon is replaced by the Brunswick in the very late uh, 1830s. Brilliant. So, so it's got a very long lifespan. So obviously you've, sure. you've, you've, you've got your own, you've fired it extensively. Uh, do you know much uh, about how it was received at the time by, by the soldiers who were issued it? Have you read a lot about that? And then how can you comment about what it's like to fire it now, how you find it? Right. Um, I, I suppose any of the stuff that I've, I can you know, pick off the top of my head is generally anecdotal. Uh, I certainly haven't read anything to say that riflemen, as those that were, you know, armed with it and used it on the battlefield were, you know, skeptical, um, you know, uh, derided. They didn't deride it. Um, I think it became very quickly part of their, their, their ethos, their identity. And in, in, in doing so, um, you know, there's a number of other differences that rifle armed troops um, exhibited most, you know, conspicuously is their dress. They're not dressed in red like the rest of the infantry. They don't wear white equipment or whitened uh, equipment as the rest of the infantry. They wear green, dark green, what's become known as rifle green. Uh, and, you know, the style of the uniform is different. Um, so at, at every turn, they're, they're different from the rest of the army. Um, and, of course, in the weapon that they carry. The capabilities they have as far as the uh, how they use their rifles and, and whatnot and what those rifles are capable of and what sort of the piece they bring to the battlefield and the the commander who's in charge of them so um i think that in a colloquial sense you know it becomes part of who they are and in doing so any inherent weaknesses of the rifle are either dealt with or seen as being well they're not really weaknesses because you know, if it, if there's if it's harder to load, well, we have other things to mitigate that. Um, whether it's different types of loading, uh, this kind of thing, or, or we make accommodations for other things that we you know need to look at in order to keep ourselves in action longer and this kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I've never come across uh, uh, any kind of anecdotal stuff in terms of Rifleman Harris and all these other sort of authors that uh, pen memoirs and have subsequently been put into books that, you know, lament about being armed with a Baker rifle. And it's always very much this, it's, this is, this is us, that this is, this is the weapon that we are special within the army and we're special for a reason within the army. And this rifle is something that we identify heavily with. Um, as far as its use in greater army, um, that's perhaps where you'd come across some friction or resistance towards the, the rifle and rifle armed troops, more importantly, as opposed to the actual pattern of rifle. Um, and this comes from uh, a, a number of angles, one of which, of course, it takes a lot more to manufacture a Baker than it does, say, a Brown Bess in terms of cutting the rifling um, and that kind of stuff. So it's more expensive. So the whole army couldn't simply be, well, why didn't, why wasn't the whole army armed with, with the rifle? Um, expense is a big part of that. 
Um, also, there's a certain degree of tradition behind it is that this is our army and this is the way it works. And look, it's successful, especially when we get later into the peninsula. You know, it's wait a minute. The, we've got a winning combination here um, uh, of all our arms and services and we're beating our enemies. So, you know, do we need to change anything? And this can maybe later manifest itself in a more deep-seated institutional level, especially as the Duke of Wellington moves past his his uh, the laurels that he wins in the peninsula and, and at Waterloo and moves into more commander-in-chief, you know, that kind of role. Um, but I digress on that point. But uh, there are some inherent weaknesses to the baker, and this is revolving around the, the more complicated loading process. Um, on the channel, uh, I've done actually some experiments regarding this and have shown, based on information found in DeWitt Bailey's book, it's funny we keep going back to this and maybe at He's the end the of man. this we can make a special mention because at no place is that much information about the Baker, uh, the Baker's history, the 1776 rifle, as made, mentioned before, but also other types of rifles within the British Army. Uh, at no place does all that information come together except in this book. It's by far the sort of the Bible, as it were. Um, uh, and so when I keep mentioning it, it's for good reason. Yeah. It, the, the drills associated with, with loading the Baker are different from those used in the Brown Bess. Um, and to say in a nutshell, the, a smoothbore musket is faster to load than a rifle. Yes, it is. Uh, I, this ex interesting experiments that I conducted on the channel, again, based on some of that information in the book, was the fact that it appears as though riflemen were actually issued two different types of ammunition. One, to include uh, a ball that was appropriately sized for the use with the patch, which would then in, in, in turn, you know, be indicative of the use of the rifle in its uh, intended classic role for precision shooting and this kind of thing. Um, but they were also issued with uh, ammunition that contained uh, round balls that were of a different size, that were more appropriate for loading without a patch. And this is, he's, he's documented this quite well. Uh, and it would appear as though this was the norm. And in doing so, you then eliminate, at the expense of some longer range accuracy, but as my personal experience goes, there's a very slight degradation of accuracy up to 100 yards, uh, which would be about the maximum range of a smoothbore battle uh, with the Brown Bess. Um, you know, engagements were certainly closer Maybe they were farther away at certain times, but that sort of a hundred yard sort of benchmark is what you could look at for any kind of serious engagement um, and, and, and shorter ranges than that, of course. So up until that range, the, the two types of ammunition that I personally have experimented with, uh, there doesn't seem to be that much uh, in terms of accuracy difference. Um, so having rifle armed troops armed with ammunition that enables them to use the rifle as a rifle, as a precision, you know, arm on the battlefield, uh, and able then at greater ranges to, you know, select an individual target and then engage that target effectively, but also use it as a de facto smoothbore arm with ammunition that, you know, travels easily down the bore, that, that tight-fitting patch is eliminated out of the equation. Um, you attain rates of fire that are the same as the brown S. So would that generally so, would they have generally used those for example if they were standing in line if you know maybe maybe they had to fall back they 
they you know they would use that for sort of volley fire in line if they were ever called to do so is it that sort of situation where you would see them using that ammunition or um i mean i, it, I would say that would definitely be one of those instances uh that it's it's perhaps a bit of a myth to say that you know riflemen fight this way being in extended order and hiding behind trees and ditches and stuff like that they certainly did as well as the rest of the light infantry um, as, and, and as we get in through the Peninsular War, we see more, not just the light infantry, but the line infantry being capable of fighting like this as well, which is one of the um, perhaps un, you know, um, un, not uncovered, but un, underappreciated aspects of how just how good the Peninsular Army was. Um, but there were times, and Waterloo is perhaps one of the most interesting cases of this, is that the, one of the battalions of the 95th is actually formed on the same ridge line as the guards. At the very climax of the battle, when the French Imperial Guard marches up the hill and is defeated at the top of the hill and then um, precipitates the withdrawal and the retreat of the whole French army, the 95th are standing in ranks at that time. They're not spaced out. They're not acting in a skirmishing role. And uh, it's probably off the top of my head the best example of this, you know, close order style of fighting being done by riflemen. So certainly, as you mentioned, that would have been a case at closer ranges. Um, you want perhaps the, the advantage of a rapid rate of fire, uh, but also the fact that you simply don't need to engage and, and load with the patch because the ranges that you're using aren't, you know, sufficient to demand that. Um, another reason perhaps to use this unpatched ammunition is simply that light infantry battle being fought in front of the, the main body of the armies has closed to a range because, of course, the French don't have rifles. They did have them, but they didn't use them. They patterned them. But So technically, the French did have a infantry rifle, but it is safe to say and use a blanket statement to say that they did not use them as part of their light infantry arm, the way that the British Army did. And why do you think that was? What, 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 have, have you um, got to the bottom of that? It had to do with uh, the same aspects as to why there weren't more riflemen in the British Army. Probably had to do with training, had to do with lack of the, the perceived lack of need, um, and they could rely on the capabilities of their light infantry arm as they were and it proved to be successful for them, so there was no need to then incorporate a much more expensive arm in the numbers that were required. That's off the top of my head why I would say um, that uh, those same, you know, economic uh, operational sort of constraints that, that come with a rifle are the same reasons why there's not, you know, half of the British armies are in real rifles. So... You can't necessarily point it at one thing, I don't think, anyway. It's got to be something that you look at as a whole. So, you know, the cost of them all, the training that's involved. Um, do we really need them? Because we're, 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 we're winning as it is. And some of the perception of, you know, lack, lack of capability, lack of rate of fire and this kind of thing. Um, so the rifle armed troops within the British Army sort of exist as this, this subculture, this the, the, the subcategory of, of infantry to jump back a little bit in our discussion to the formation of the light infantry in the beginning of the 1800s. Uh, Sir John Moore, the Shorncliffe camp is sort of the epicenter of this, this new, new to the contemporary army training. 
Uh, that's kind of a mouthful to put around there. But of course, these skills have existed in the past. They've sort of been parked, but maybe ignored a little bit. And then they see this need that we need to get this back, you know, uh, as an army capability. And they, they task, as I see, you mentioned, the 43rd and the 52nd, along with the newly created 95th. And they put them in, in a camp of instruction, for lack of a better term. And they put them through uh, intensive training, a different style of discipline um, that, you know, what's demanded of the individual is a little bit different than what would be necessarily demanded of the individual in other regular line battalions. And they build this essentially new light infantry capability um, in both battlefield capability, but also ethos and the sort of the, the, the way they approach uh, battle uh, from the individual standpoint, the things that they require their soldiers to, to, to be, the kind, of, the kind of soldiers they demand them that they need to be. So this grows and grows and grows. And there's other battalions or regiments that are brought into the light infantry fold as we go along, the 71st, which later becomes the Highland Light Infantry. Um, was it the 90th Perthshires, was it? Yes, the 90th is another one. Uh, and so these battalions are taken from the line and trained up as light infantry and become light infantry battalions. And so we see across the army that the ratio of light infantry to line infantry changes. And it uh, is actually, I'm just going to show you a really interesting book here. Yeah. That I found particularly interesting. It's called the British Light Infantry Army. Oh, I have it. Uh, yes, I haven't read it yet, but I, I do have it. It's, so I've, it, it's, it shows a really interesting, I mean, it talks about the whole history of it. The dates here, 1790 to 1815. So it talks about all the things that we've sort of brushed over right now. Um, and one of the lines that comes out of that book that I remember is that essentially in the assessment of the author is that the British Light Infantry Arm you know, perhaps starts a little bit behind the eight ball, but very quickly matches and is then able to engage and 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 better their French counterparts. And they 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 begin to dominate the light infantry battle. The Peninsular Army was was quite fantastic. Uh, and when you start looking into it, it defies many of the conventions that we associate with with that style and that era of fighting. Um, it moved a lot at the double, and 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 battalions were often within moving the companies within the battalion structure, moving in double time, running, but also maneuvering at the double. The whole battalion, you know, advancing to take a specific piece of ground. This was becoming uh, a capability that whole units were having, which isn't even in any drill book. Uh, so it, it it's interesting that. This light infantry capability that um, develops in the army and it never leaves, but the rest of the army slowly comes up to that level. And certainly by the mid 1800s, companies are trained across the board. Uh, at that point, we're looking at eight companies in a battalion. They're all trained in that light infantry extended order role uh, by that point. Uh, we're getting a little bit away from the topic, of course, at hand, but it's sort of tracing that evolution as you, be, you asked way back when about where it comes from where it comes through and where it goes to and uh, sort of traces that that evolution and at the center of all of that um in, in microcosm of course is the baker rifle because if we look at that sub 
you know, genre of infantry within the light infantry. It's the riflemen that that provide that extra just little bit of capability uh, yeah. to whatever commander they're working for, really. You know, I forgot to ask you the obvious question, which probably a lot of people listening will want to know, especially those who haven't watched uh, all of your videos. Can you give us an idea of what a trained rifleman, how many rounds you would kind of expect to fire a minute? Um, you know, is it one? Is it three? You know, if you're doing things properly and then if you were doing things the fast way. It would generally be understood that a three round a minute rough um, uh, you know, benchmark you can associate with a brown bass. Uh, I've done a little bit of experimentation and a little bit of digging. Um, there's some inf information provided to me by another friend of the channel, Ewan, that we've had long discussions about trying to nail this down. It does. It's very hard to find out. There's certainly no in the manuals. There's zero emphasis on rate of fire. In terms of you must attain this to be effective, or you will be tested on this, you know, rate of fire in order to pass your recruit school. There's there's none of that. Uh, which speaks to sort of its importance on the battlefield uh, it, to a degree. That's a bit of a different topic. Uh, interesting, though, it is, especially well, to me anyway. Um, when we look at the Baker rifle uh, used in that non-patched mode for sort of maximum rate of fire, it matches the brown best, and I, you can shoot three rounds a minute. Uh, that's done sort of best speed at a target that is at 100 yards away, sort of life size, and you can hit it. Um, you know, with the patch, in, even in cartridge form, things slow down a little bit. Is it two rounds a minute? It's certainly not, you know, one round a minute or one round every two minutes or something. There are there is some crazy stuff that you can see on the Internet about this. Uh, and given, you know, even remotely historical kind of uh, ammunition and con concepts, you can easily attain. Even shooting loose patch ball and powder with using a, a powder horn or a flask, measuring loose powder in a loose patch in one hand and a ball in the other out of your pouch and doing it that way, you know, it's still... It, it, it's still under like one round a minute or sorry, like it's more than one round a minute. Rate of fire is a little, I'm getting the sense as I walk through some of these research, this research and, and references it, it is a bit of a red herring. Um, I don't know where that comes from. And especially the internet, you know, things are picked up and run with um, that, you know, British infantry fought at three rounds a minute everywhere they went. They just marched up and just, you know, overpowered your enemy with this fast musketry and and then you hear you know similar things oh well the french could only manage two rounds a minute so just by math that's why the british infantry won all the time but what you find is that instances of sustained fire whether it's fast or slow but just toe-to-toe -to -toe slugfests are exceptionally rare uh, we talked a little bit just before we started here about Alhera. That is perhaps one of the most notable examples, but there are others where just either the fog of war, the the interpretation of you know uh, orders and commands, and the the intent of the of the battle uh, as it as it evolves is understood a certain way or even misunderstood, and it's like the the disengagement doesn't happen uh, in the North American context. There's a battle. Of the during the War of 1812, which of course is a subset of the the, the Greater Napoleonic Wars, uh, it takes place in Canada at a place called Lundy's Lane, which is in the Niagara Peninsula. 
just bordering the United States or very close to the, 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 the join between Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. And uh, this is an example of repeated, uh, the armies repeatedly coming together and fighting, you know, very intensely with musketry and not being able to sort of push each other out of the way um, to the point at which they win. And it becomes a slugfest. And it's it's just this incessant musketry duel. And the, the sides come together and they bumble into each other in the dark or the smoke, depending on what time of the day the battle, you know, of the battle is fought into the night. Um, and they engage in musketry and, and it's horrific. And eventually one side just melts away. And one time it's that side and the other time it's the other side. And then they reorganize and they come right back into it and they do the same thing again and again. These examples are kind of very rare. Um that predominantly the army fights with a methodology that consists of a few short one or two volleys um, and an immediate follow-up with a charge. Mm, yeah, let them so taste cold the, steel. That's right. Um, and that proves to be the decisive factor. If we look at what happens at El Bujero in what is, if you were to generalize, it's a musketry battle, is essentially two boxers are going toe-to-toe and they just beat each other to a pulp. And, you know, the French boxer is only one punch behind the British. And eventually that one punch that he's not able to land, you know, the British boxer just outlasts that one extra punch. And then it's over. But it, it takes all day to figure that out. And the amount of, you know, cuts and bruises and swollen eyes that both sides have, they, they just can't continue anymore. But again... It, it's this other battles and the, the classic sort of uh, peninsular engagement is this, let them come on, let them come on or maneuver and catch them right now. And then appear, close, fire and charge. And that proves to be the decisive, you know, methodology. So where in that methodology does rate of fire enter into it? The, perhaps the most famous example of that volley and charge, of course, is at Waterloo where the Imperial Guard marches up to the top of the hill and they're met by the British Guards and other uh, regiments uh, who then you know, stand up and boom, at close range, begin to deliver musketry and they win the battle and end up with Wellington's, you know, I should say famously attributed remarks of, you know, now Maitland, now's your time and or up guards and at them and all that kind of stuff. But th it's speaking to that volley and charge tactic. It's not speaking to a prolonged musketry battle of you know hours and, and engagement and re-engagement and that kind of thing so how it applies to the rifle it uh the nature especially of a longer range engagement the rate of fire is necessarily is slower because you need to aim more carefully um but also your enemies at a longer distance so that immediacy of having to shoot again and again and again faster and faster initially would begin out of their range because your enemy remember is armed with a smoothbore musket they can't shoot you with any effect you know on over 100 yards let's just say that notionally um so especially in an extended order where there's big gaps between you and you're using perhaps cover but sometimes not but simply your cover your your protection is the fact that you're not next to each other that the files are spaced apart and in doing so, you've created a lot more space for that for that that missed musket ball to go. So if it misses you, it's going to go into space. It's not going to go into the person beside you. 
So there's a number of aspects that that f come into this 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 rate of fire question. Um, and when you're when you're engaging people at 300 yards who are advancing towards you, you know, walking or deliberately in, in the light infantry context of skirmishing forward, they need to get and cover quite a long distance before the, you they can shoot at you. Taking your time, loading carefully, making sure that every round can count as best as you can at that point of the battle is very beneficial. You're not simply wanting to pound the rounds out again and again and again because the the the, the nature of the battle necessarily may not be quite like that. So, but when they get closer, that's when that rate of fire maybe comes more of a factor for sure. Yeah. Well, this, this leads me very nicely into uh, the next point, which is uh, range. Can you give us, I mean, we've, we've kind of, of touched on it, but maybe you might have an example or two to discuss from the Peninsular War of uh, <laughs> of some particularly good marksmanship using the Baker rifle. Does anything spring to mind there, Rob? There's actually, well, there's one in particular, yes. Now, it's, I, I would say if we have to talk Baker marksmanship, there's only one person that, that uh, I shouldn't say that only one person. There is one person and name that's going to pop up no matter which way you slice it. And this, of course, is... Plunkett. Plunkett was a rifleman in the 95th and partook in the retreat to Corona in uh, uh, the winter of 1808-1809. And he is famous for, well, I guess in terms of marksmanship for a specific feat. Apparently he was a very good shot. He's also famous for other things like ill-discipline and drink and, and, and things that the, the bane of, of soldiers of the era. Uh, but I digress. So there was a very small action fought at a little village in Spain called, well, Casabellus, Cacabellus, I've heard it pronounced. I'm, I'm sorry for those people that may be watching that, <laughs> that speak Spanish, uh, that I've butchered the name. Um, but here, uh, during the withdrawal or the retreat to Corona, uh, which is part of that initial foray into the peninsula, they... Uh, are conducting a rear guard action uh, at the Casabellos, which is on a uh, stream with a bridge. So obviously it's a defile, a choke point, and an important aspect of, of you know the movement of troops. The main part of the army has already crossed and gone off, and the rear guard brigade is then positioned on both sides of the river and guarding this bridge. And their intent, of course, like all rear guards, is to delay the enemy give them a bit of a bloody nose and then withdraw themselves to create more space between the main army and the pursuing forces. And they're actually in the middle of a uh, field punishment uh, and conducting a field punishment when they're sort of surprised by the French. So they quickly pack up and they move back across. There's a bit of, a bit of uh, exchange of musketry back and forth and they end up crossing the bridge and taking up positions on the, uh, uh, the, well, the northern bank of the river. And the brigade is formed up uh, abreast the road that leads from the bridge off up towards uh, Corona. And uh, part of this position, of course, are um, close order battalions that are formed up, but also in uh, battalions and companies that are in extended order, the skirmish line, let's call it, in advance of that. Very conventional as far as you know deployments go. And... There's an episode during this whole action where a French general comes across the bridge with his aide, and presumably he's come across, he's um, uh, admonished 
some of his men already. And he's come across to perhaps see what's going on in terms of what the holdup is, that kind of thing. And he comes to the, the near side of the bridge and Plunkett decides that he's going to you know, take a shot. We can presume uh, that he's part of this, this skirmish line uh, as part of the brigade deployment. And the account goes that he runs forward from the skirmish line. So in advance of that, takes up a position uh, and shoots the French general. And then he turns around and his, as the aide is coming up to see, you know, if he's okay, if he's alive, what, what, what just happened, um, Plunkett shoots him as well. And at the time, it was probably just an, an instance of, hey, that was a pretty good shot. Because as soon as Plunkett then shoots them, he makes, beats a quick retreat back to the skirmish line. And so what probably happens at the time is that his file mates, the people that are in the skirmish line with him, have seen this, this, this happen and sort of like pat on the back is like, that was a couple of good shots, Plunkett. Nice job. And he sort of perhaps says, yes, thank you very much. Or, yeah, it was no problem. Or, well, I was hoping I could get him and it was just lucky. Uh, it could be anything in there. I don't know particularly what his personality was like, but, you know, perhaps in a, a generic soldierly way, there was a little bit of back padding on both sides and a, you know, punch in the shoulder, nice shot kid, that kind of stuff. Um, but what this happened, this, at that point, it's recognized by being special at the moment. A good shot. The fact that he shot two individuals um, at what would appear to be not, you know, at, at a range that made it special. So it's important uh, as we talk about the story to talk about, you know, that aspect of it. There's never a range mentioned. There's never, you know, Plunkett engaged uh, on the official account at, at this number of yards or uh, and whatnot. There are some diagrams. There's a very good article on this written by a man named Moore. And he was part of um, a Rifles Living History organization in the UK. He sadly passed away now. Um, and it, he, the article's on the 2nd Battalion 95th Rifles website, which is a living history organization of the UK. And it's probably the best written piece on Plunkett's events that I've ever read. And I lean heavily on that, um, perhaps most importantly, because it's completely common sense. It takes the ground as it was visited by the author into account and the, the, the necessary speculation about how things happen is very plausible. So I, 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 you know, I defer to that. Um, I've referenced that heavily and it, it, I've used it a lot in guiding my sort of assessment of, of what went on. So other than that, it's a very bog standard rear guard action. But what was and, the what was the range, Rob? What was the yes, range yes. of those shots? See, this is, this is it. <laughs> is there's a number of aspects in order to arrive at that question, right? Because uh, there's all kinds of internet myth, much like the Mad Minute myth with the Lee Enfield is, you know, it's it's beginning to be under control now. But there was one point where it's completely rampant and completely ridiculous. So too the Plunkett myth is the same. It has ballooned in, out of all proportion. Um, I've seen articles that are quoting the event at, you know, 800 yards and like, stuff. You're just, who writes this stuff? <laughs> because it's so absolutely ridiculous. So 
if you're placing these shots done at extended ranges, even for the modern day, at like of eight or 600 yards, there's no way that you can make repeatable accuracy the size of this or the size of this. Because the way that the account goes is that, or, or one version of it, is that these were both uh, rounds that impacted in both gentlemen's heads. So they were two, let's say, quote unquote, headshots. Well, if that was just luck, that may have been just luck or just the way that the ball flew. If it was done on purpose, if, if he was specifically aiming that way, and, you know, I I don't know of any soldier who's ever trained that way to specifically aim to the head, especially at any range, any reasonable range. It's always sort of center of what you see, aim at the person, at the center of the chest, at the belt buckle, somewhere where you know that you've got the best chance of hitting. Um because, of course, a head is quite a small target, especially at extended ranges. So if he did shoot two, you know, two men in the head, then that range has to be reduced significantly given the capabilities of the rifle. That if the rifle at 200 yards shoots you know, 15 or 18 inches for 10 rounds, the chances of hitting a head in two rounds, hitting two heads in two rounds, are just you know, very much diminished. So that speaks to the rifle in terms of its sights, the rifle as far as the capabilities of, of the rifling, the mechanical capabilities of, of the way the, the, the design of the rifle goes. Um, the, the ground. Now, I've had the opportunity to actually be on the ground, and I spent a whole afternoon in Casabellos walking around as best as possible. A great much of it has been built over. Um, some of it's more, more than not. So it, it unfortunately has taken away from any kind of, you know, really good assessment of the ground. But I was able to take some drone shots and all of this is going to feature in a video on my channel, actually, at some point. Um, in the article I mentioned in the 95th website, he could draw us the conclusion of, you know, is it around 200 yards that he made that shot? Given the, the position of the rear guard, the skirmish line, sort of an acceptable or a reasonable amount of distance he could have moved in order to take up his shot. Uh, and then the range from that point to the end of the bridge. And, and in my walking around and looking at the ground and the way it, 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 it where these units were positioned, um, I would agree with what was found in that article. So I, I draw the same conclusions as what the article draws. So is it 150 to 200 yards? And this is factoring in all these aspects, of course. Um, the other thing, the last thing we haven't talked about is the training. Now, you know, this is a fairly new campaign in 1809. Um, it just started, you know, over the winter of 1808, 1809. So it's not like the army's been in the field, specifically the rifles haven't been in the field for extended periods of time. People have built up a sort of corporate or a personal ability because they've been in action many times and they're comfortable with what they can do and their skills have improved. But what we can default to as far as Rifle Corps training is details that are given, again, in DeWitt Bailey's book. But these are translated or taken from period works about musketry training of the 95th. And there, ranges are shot out to 300 yards. And it was typical of, of first-class shots to shoot at 300 yards.
Okay, guys, so there you have it. I think Rob has covered a lot of ground there, and I certainly, as always, learnt a lot from him. If you're interested to know more about Rob and see more demonstrations of these weapons, then visit his excellent YouTube channel, British Muzzleloaders. The Redcoat History Podcast will be back next month as we move on to the aftermath of the Battle of Busaco and the retreat to the lines of Torres Vedras in 1810. For those of you listening on the podcast, if you can't wait a whole month to hear my beautiful East Midlands accent, and who could blame you, then do visit the Redcoat History YouTube channel where I'm posting more regularly, shorter videos. All right, guys, take care. See you soon.